You're listening to the Remote Explorers podcast, a show that allows you to connect, learn, and be inspired by the stories of people who have used the power of remote work to have unconventional experiences in their lives. The podcast is hosted by Mayur and Shahzada, who are experienced and equally curious remote workers. Hello, everyone. Welcome to another episode of the Remote Explorers podcast. Today, we have a very special guest with us. We have Alex Hillman. Mayur, uh, give our audience a little introduction about who Alex is. Uh, if you are, you know, if you are a co-working operator listening to this, you don't need any introduction to Alex Hillman. Uh, <laughs> Alex uh, started, the, you know, one of the first co-working spaces, not just in the US, but in the world back in 2006. Uh, when a lot of people did not know about co-working. Even before the lockdown, when I spoke to people about co-working in India, uh, I had to explain what co-working is. So I can't imagine how it was back in 2006 uh, when you had to go and tell people, okay, come to my space, work from here, meet other cool people. And people were like, okay, is it a fancy internet cafe or something? So, uh, Alex had an interesting journey. He he was in IT before and uh, he started freelancing and uh, he realized that he was not meeting people uh, working on freelancing projects. So, he decided to start Indie Hall. Uh, that's his co-working space in Philadelphia um, back in 2006. And... Uh, it's a very special day because tomorrow uh, Alex is releasing his first book, Tiny MBA, uh, which is uh, you know which is full of wisdom from his uh, long business career and long journey building communities and building businesses. Uh, so we'll talk a lot about his journey, uh, the wisdom from the book, and his views on. The future of work. Yeah. How are you doing today, Alex? I'm great. I'm especially great now that I'm here with you two. Uh, looking forward to catching up and and digging into some some stories and some of the lessons from the tiny MBA. Uh, and like you said, I'm pumped. Tomorrow's book launch day. So yeah. uh, it's also. Uh, it's also my birthday tomorrow. Uh, I did. I, I decided launching a book on my birthday was a great way for me to be able to say, "Hey, it's my birthday. Buy my book." <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, me and Mayur were lucky enough to have a pre-copy of your book. I went through the whole book. It took me. It, it didn't even take me 40, 45 minutes to go through the whole thing. And it. And I stopped on every quote that you've written, everything that I read, and I introspected. I, I gave a thought to every every little detail about it. And in those little words, the amount of wisdom in those three lines in every quote has shook me from the bottom of my spine. And that's why I sent you that email with a big thank you for, for giving me a different perspective. Uh, so let's start with, uh, because this podcast is about stories. I'm really curious to know how did Indie Hall happen and give a little, give a little uh, context to our audience to your journey from Indie Hall, why Indie Hall happened, to where you are right now. Sure. Well, like you said before, in 2006, nobody knew what co-working was. Um, so when, when people today still have to describe it, um, I feel you. 
Um, but at least you've got a newspaper article to point to or something that, that shows that this is a real thing. But the truth is, is that I didn't set out to start a co-working space um, in the way that people do today. I think today people uh, visit a co-working space or they see them through, you know, experiences online. They hear about them being cool. They go do some research and then they go, I'm going to create one of these in, in, in my city or my town or my village, which uh, is cool, but I think also makes it really easy to skip over the important stuff that we did at the beginning that I still advise and guide people to attempt to do now because it informs not just the space, but who's in it, what their expectations are, and how it grows, how it evolves. You know, the way something begins is the way something it continues, I think is is very true. And in the case of Indie Hall, like you said before, I was I was freelancing. I had left a full-time job in web development to go out and do it on my own, which was great from an entrepreneurial perspective. I had freedom and flexibility and choice. I could do my own thing. But on the other hand, I was really isolated and lonely. And I know the entrepreneurial experience and um, is is can, can feel that way. And for folks that are doing that remote as another layer of that, where you have to, you know, anytime you, you make friends and connections in a place, you have to work extra hard to maintain them across places or hope you can reconnect and, and those kinds of things. So that sense of it was a sense of place and also a sense of, of community that was really, really missing. And at the time, it seemed easier for me to find, find like-minded people anywhere except my own city. Uh, you know, San Francisco, the Bay Area is, you know, storied and fabled about you know, Silicon Valley. And, you know, it's where the internet is made, air quotes. Um, that's certainly how it seemed. Because, and it's not because everything was made there, but it's because there was a critical mass there. I could see that there were people there. They did things together. They gathered. They bounced ideas off each other. And they were even doing this thing that I learned was called co-working after a cafe had basically plugged up its power outlets and said, please don't st stay here all day long on your laptops. Go find somewhere else to work. And so a group of folks said, well, we can do that. Why don't we just create a place that is our own place and, you know, People, some people will pay uh, for a dedicated desk. Everyone else can come and just hang out. And it's sort of like having a clubhouse for, for laptop-bound workers. I saw that and I go, well, that's genius. Like, I want that. Um, and then realized, but I don't know anybody here. <laughs> so, um, you know, with, with no, rela no real relationships or connections other than, you know, the handful of people that I had worked with in, in my past jobs and with, you know, basically no money. I was, you know, making enough money to pay my bills, but I didn't really have much in terms of savings. Uh, and, and very, and, and no zero brick and mortar business experience, no real estate experience. Um, I was like, all right, well, I can't start there. Where can I start? Well, I can go find people. I can go meet people. Uh, and it was actually after a failed attempt to move to the Bay area that I sort of reflected and said, why was I trying to leave Philadelphia? and realized that if I could find those people, I would never have to leave Philadelphia because the city's great. It's got amazing art and culture and history and food, and it's easy to get around and it's really affordable. Uh, you know, it's got all these other advantages. I just got to find my internet people, um, which is so funny to think about like finding internet people in the real world, but that is very much the reality that we live in. And so I set out on that path to find those people. And it was, you know, this is 
before meetup.com had any presence in Philadelphia. And there was very little meetup culture even without meetup.com. So I had to kind of leverage a handful of existing professional networks that weren't really my style, weren't really my speed. But I would go to them because my hope was maybe there's one other person that's going to them. It's not their speed either. And we find each other. And that's what happened. Uh, and that happened repeatedly. And I'd meet one person and say, oh, do you know this other person? You know, they, they just, they're, they're launching their first software as a service. And I was like, people are doing software as a service in Philadelphia? That's amazing. I want to meet them. Or um, wh whatever it was, that one-on-one, person-to-person network building, relationship building was the beginning of Indie Hall before there was an Indie Hall. It wasn't called anything. There was no real clear ambition for a space. It was just, I want to need to know who my people are. And along the way, we started doing more things together. Obviously, introducing those people to each other is where it goes from being my connections to the form of what starts to feel like a community. And, you know, so somebody pointed out that a lot of us are working from home. Not all of us, but some of us. And some of us were, we'd go to a cafe in our neighborhood to get out of the house you know, a couple times a week just for a change of scenery. And somebody was like, what if we went to the same cafe on the same day at the same time on purpose? And I was like, huh, we could do that, couldn't we? Uh, and we, we did that a couple of times. And it was, even though we're sitting in a cafe that we've sat in before, and the Wi-Fi is not very good, and the seats are uncomfortable, and the barista doesn't really want us to be there, the experience of being around other people on purpose was the thing that was missing. And what that led to was another conversation is after building up a rhythm of gathering in cafes and bars that had Wi anywhere that had Wi-Fi would let us hang out for the day, each other's living rooms. Sometimes um, it turned into a question of if we had our own place, we could do this all the time and it would be easier for people to find us. And you know, can we do that? I guess we can do that. I guess we got to go find a place. And that was when it, having gone through that relationship building process first, it went from what I think people experience today, which is I'm going to go find a space and then I'm going to fill it with people to, I went and found people and we created the space together. So when we opened the space, that was like a three month period, which was very, very fast. But in those three months from, Hey, maybe we can do this to the doors are open and we're throwing a grand opening party that people are coming to from cities across the country. That happened because people had already been coming together. And so turning this, this just became like a group project, right? Uh, the analogy I, I often use is a barn raising uh, where the community comes together to create a barn for the new family in town as a gesture, but also a, a collaborative co-creative process. So, you know, the, the origin of Indie Hall started that way, but what's important to me, and I think is relevant to Indie Hall, and today in the context of the coronavirus and the physical space being closed, it's been closed now since the middle of March and for, you know, probably the next few months at least, um, the reason to be part of Indie Hall is not the space. The space is just a tool that we happen to share. 
the reason to be a part of Indie Hall is the other people. And we happen to live in a time where the internet lets us come together. I mean, we're sitting here, we're able to see each other's face, hear each other's voices. It's not the same. I wish we were sitting in a cafe or a bar, hanging out, having these conversations with a with a recorder between us. But, you know, in in the scenario we're in right now, I think it's very, very hard for co-working spaces that brought people together for the space and then some people built relationships and there's a sense of community, it is way harder to have the space taken away. Not that it's not hard for us. It's been really, really challenging and it's been even more challenging for some people than others. But I think when when the primary value that a co-working space provides is the space, uh, um, well, you're, you, I think you're seeing what people value now based on their continued participation in a space or if back to from the operator perspective the fact that a lot of operators struggle to see beyond the space that they offer and realize you've got a whole group of people who have new challenges now why aren't you helping them with those challenges why aren't you helping them help each other with those challenges and to me it's just a it's 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 a it makes it so evident that for a lot of people co-working they say it's not about the space, but they have, but it, it is, the space is still at the center. The space is sort of the nexus and the center of gravity. And if you take away the space, a lot of things go away. Um, and I think it's going to be an interesting time as things evolve. And unfortunately, you know, a lot of independent spaces, uh, a lot of big spaces, a lot of all kinds of spaces are, are, are probably not going to reopen, um, especially here in the US where, where things continue to be pretty bad. But um, but yeah, I mean, I think that the, the origin story of Indie Hall is, is both my personal origin story, but it's also the origin of a lot of people's, you know, professional entrepreneurial careers. They, they Them being around other entrepreneurs for the first time gave them the confidence to take their own entrepreneurship, their own creative pursuits a bit more seriously. We still see that today, but I can track it back to conversations that we had in our local bar after a day of work talking about, well, you know, I got a new client. Now what? Or whatever it was. Yeah. So Alex, one question to you. Do you need all those screens right in front of you to keep track of your huge community? Do I need all of the, I'm sorry, what? So I was, I was saying, you have so many screens right in front of you. Oh, so I many screens. Because... <laughs> <laughs> uh, I, you said so, I thought you said so many, I'm sorry, you thought you said so many greens and I was like, I do need more plants. <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, I think, it, I think one of the, the interesting things about the online thing, I know you're making a joke, but I'm going to take it seriously for a moment. The challenge with online community is out of sight, out of mind right? If you close the program, it's gone. Uh, the flip side is I think a lot of folks response to online community right now is events. Everything's an event, everything is scheduled. And it's a learning event or a networking event or something. And like, that's great. We're doing that too. Like that's way, that's way better than zero. But it's not the same as the serendipitous ability to kind of pick your own schedule you know, who is in the room is who happens to be in the room and who is near you is who happens to be near you. And the conversations that emerge are the ones that happen to emerge. We are just now five months in starting to figure out a little bit about how to do that online. The tools are also starting to get a little bit better um, in, in that direction too. 
but that element is, I think one of the most painful is, you know, being, you know, trapped at home. So to speak. like, I've got a comfortable life. Um, we have a nice house in a nice neighborhood. I'm with my wife and we have another friend who lives with us. Like think we're comfortable, we're fine. But when you think about like what's really missing besides the, this feeling of safety going outside, it's that bumping into a friend, like bumping into a friend on the street or when I go to the store feels like the most cosmic thing because everyone is inside. And so what are the odds that you, someone I know, chose to go to the same store at the same time seems mind blowing right now. Meanwhile, for 14 years, in, that's all Indie Hall ever did was serendipity. Uh, so it's been, it's been pretty, it's been pretty wacky. I was a client at Mayur's co-working space. I was in Goa, I was working on a project, uh, doing my usual digital nomading stuff, going from here and there. So I stopped in Goa for a couple of months and I happened to put co-working space on Google, tracked through my Google Maps, reached Nomad Gao, uh, met Mayur on the second day. And I was there for two months. Uh, I come back, uh, I go to another state in India, uh, working on another project. And then because we we had such a great connection and we, we had similar interests for the future, uh, Mayur approached me and we, we are working on a couple of projects together. We've started this podcast. So if it, that, that, this is what serendipity is. If it wouldn't have happened because of that co me being in that co-working space, you, me and Mayur who wouldn't be having this conversation right now. So that brings me to uh, how important it is to physically meet, because I, what I've seen in the last six months doing a lot of online virtual meetings, the essence of uh, meeting some, as you said, uh, the right person in the right room at the right time, that, that feel, uh, I don't know, the virtual world uh, would take some time for that. And But, but that brings me to uh, the initiative that uh, Indie Hall is doing right now, uh, the coffee meetups. Uh, something like that would... would uh, bring up the chances of meeting a stranger that you and the other person could have similar interest and maybe those two people can start a venture together in the coming times. Yeah, so we've done twice daily, so one, to one at 9 a.m., one at 10 a.m. A, this is on the scheduled side, but we can talk more about that. A, it's, a, it's your morning coffee. The idea was to recreate that time where before you start your work, you'd go into the kitchen, grab a cup of coffee, have a chat, no scheduled topic, right? It's scheduled time and not a scheduled topic. And in our case, it was also a space that was a little more protected from um, the bad news of the day. Uh, not, It's not a, like a super strict rule, but we definitely m sort of guide and coach the conversation from what we call uh, doom diving, uh, where, you know, whether it's something our stupid, our president said that day or whatever, you know, ha happened with the, the virus or like, it's been a rough few months. And so to wake up in the morning and have a space where you can talk to other people about something other than the shitty thing that's going on right now can totally change the rest of your day. And so I think that's a, re that's a really valuable experience. We also do, you know, similar situation on a happy hour on Friday. We do show and tell every Thursday at noon, uh, which is, a, you know, a little more presentation oriented, but it's meant to spark conversations. The thing that all those things have in common though, is that they are still scheduled time, which is good for getting people to show up, 
but is still not the same as that serendipitous it's thing. Planned event. It's a yeah. it's planned serendipity, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. which is you know okay cool. It's a half step. So what I, what I'll share it's been a cool experiment, and this is very new for us, but a, a really so far very successful experiment is we have historically used Slack as our um, chat platform. Uh, most people are familiar with Slack, you know, lots of rooms. It's all, almost like a co-working space, except I realize now it's actually more like an office and that's by design. Slack is a teamwork tool, not a community tool. It just so happens to be used by lots of teams. It is really rigid and structured uh, in that very specific way. And if you are in a, if you're viewing in a room, if you're reading, there's no way for the other people to see it, right? So like we've got, a, we've got, let's say one of our most popular rooms is about comic books, right? Lots of people in our community love comic books, graphic novels, things like that. And so if you are, if you just finished your coffee before you start work, you're going to go scroll through the comic book channel and just see what people were talking about yesterday because you were busy working. There's no way for anyone else to see that mayor is in there right now looking, stop in and say hello, that's missing. And that's a problem. So we've been experimenting about almost two and a half weeks now into an experiment using Discord, which is notoriously popular in gaming communities. That's where it started. Looks a lot like Slack in terms of its chat, its channels, its messaging, its emojis and GIFs and all the stuff that we're used to. But it's got one, it's got a bunch of things that I think are really cool. But the thing that has been most exciting for me, and I think for our future and why we're putting the energy into shifting this way, is it's got these video and voice channels. And the video and voice channels themselves in a gaming context is where like you go with your friends and you get a little back channel while you're, you know, playing playing a game together online. Um, in the context of a community building experience, though, those voice and video channels can be used for anything. We, we, you can use them for a breakout room where you're in text and you're typing like, hey, let's just go have a quick chat in the same way that if you're at your desk, you like, hey, let's just go over, sit at that table real quick and have a quick chat. You can click in the voice chat and boom, now we're having a, an actual video a voice conversation and video is optional, not mandatory, which is another thing. I think people, I like the video experience. But I think for a lot of folks, it's, you know, I got to make sure there's not a mess behind me. You know, my hair's all crazy. I don't, I don't, you know, it's more energy to pay attention to the other person. So voice being the default, I think is really interesting. We took it one step further. I created a, a voice channel in our Discord that uses the screen sharing function. That's another thing you could do in a voice and video channel. And I'm screen sharing a live stream of a fish tank at an aquarium. And so the fish tank is basically always live. And there's the, you know, fish are where you left them. They're in the tank. <laughs> and so, and there's like the soothing noise of the bubbles and it creates this place where you could, it's like going to the coffee pot. You, like you've got a few minutes. I'm just going to go see what the fish are up to. And Discord shows you who else is looking at the fish. And all of a sudden I can be like, oh, my friend Faith is over by the fish. I'm going to just drop in and say hi. Step in, say hello, have a quick conversation. Cool. Um, getting back to my, my work. It was good to, you know, good to chat for a minute. And those are the kinds of things that 
it, again, in just two weeks or so, we've had enough of those experiences. I had a, a few more where, you know, I was working kind of late on a project and I noticed that somebody else was either in the fishes or just testing out Discord because we're still kind of in that, you know, exploration mode. And I would see a friend, I'd stop in and be like, hey, what's up? And we'd have like a 20 or 30 minute conversation that we didn't plan, didn't schedule. And those nighttime ones in particular feel kind of like, and I'm sure both of you know what this feels like, being the last ones in the co-working space. And, you know, or like the last ones in a restaurant where you're like in conversations, kind of wandering. Yeah, I know we're going to finish, but you know, walking towards the door together. It felt like that. And I hadn't felt that in almost six months. So that's a, a vote of confidence for the tool, but also a way of thinking about the, the experience and why a co-working space or something like it, or any sort of shared, so again, I think restaurants and bars and cafes fall into that third space category of there's a increased probability of seeing somebody that you recognize or someone that you don't recognize, but you now have a context. You know, in this case, we can talk about the, I don't have to even ask your name, we can just talk about the fish and that could be the only part of the conversation. And that's still a bright spot in, in the day. Yeah. So Alex, you have been in co-working industry for, uh, I think million years now. Uh, <laughs> uh, and the co-working industry in India is at a very nascent stage. Uh, barely in last three or four years, uh, people have started hearing this word. Uh, so what would be your advice to someone uh, who's passionate about building communities, uh, you know, co-working communities or communities of freelancers? Yeah. Uh, so right now, in particular, I think we're in, and this is true in India, I'm sure this is true everywhere, including in the US, where co-working may appear to be further along, more sophisticated I would argue uh, that's not always true. Um, a lot of the co-working in America is really just kind of rebranded office sharing, corporate office sharing and things like that. So um, I, I think, well, there's sort of two things. One is I'll start with don't compare yourself to somebody else. Don't try to recreate what somebody else created because you don't know, you can't know. And also what they have there is not what you have wherever you are, even if it's just down the street, right? Communities are the sum of the people in them, which means that even two communities operating in the same building are gonna be different communities. So don't, like I would say, stop paying attention, actively tune out what's happening in the co-working industry, period. Most of it's garbage, most of it's a distraction, most of it has nothing to do with the people that you are best suited to serve and the way you serve them. The only people you should be paying attention to are those people. So the sort of second piece of that puzzle is who are those people getting really clear about who they are and what is your connection to them? What is your relationship? If they are freelancers, are you a freelancer? Did you used to be a freelancer? Do you have a particular reason to want to support the, the, the that freelance community if they're you know more startup oriented, whatever that that sort of uh, focused area? I think people there, there's this funny balance between we want we want to be inclusive, right? We want people to feel welcome, and I, I'm very into that. But 
in order for even that to be possible, there needs to be a thing for people to feel welcome in. And if you can't define who is there, if you can't describe who is there, the way those people describe themselves, I think people, I ask people like who works in your co-working space and they rattle off a bunch of demographics that are not the way those people would describe themselves, right? So figure out who it is that you want to be in a community with that what is the community that you want to cultivate with remember you're a part of it this is not a community that you were building out there over there this is it's it's you you're a part of it and so what is the community you want to be part of and who are those people and how do they describe themselves if you can't answer that yet goodness gracious do not go rent a space <laughs> don't start that like get clear on that start building those rhythms and and, and rituals of bringing people together, host a karaoke night or a, a potluck dinner or stuff that costs you basically no money, but people can come and bring themselves and something to share. If you go into things with that mindset, you can, what you will build, frankly, might not even be a co-working space, but that's okay. Cause I don't think co-working spaces are all that magical. I mean, I think they are, but like to create them, unto themselves is not magical. To bring people together is magical. A co-working space is just one tool to do it. So bring people together by whatever means you have and whatever makes sense for those people and let it like let it become something and let them be a part of creating something. That is still happening in the co-working world. It is just not the most dominant narrative. In the same way that, you know, a lot of the stuff I talk about in the tiny MBA is stuff that absolutely still happens in the business world. It's just not the stuff that people talk about. It's not the stuff that people hear about. And it's not the first thing that comes to your mind when you say it's my turn to do this because it becomes all about my idea, my turn, yeah. my vision, instead of who they are and how how I serve them. Yeah. I, I want to quote something uh, very similar to what you've just said from the book. So you say, if you if you only show up when you want the clicks or attention, you will lose but you'd be amazed how quickly you can get people contacting and referring to see how helpful you are to your peers and how regular you are to a community. Mm -hmm. So see the word community, uh, since the last nine, 10 years, it has become a part of any virtual business. <laughs> so people are yeah. like, Hey, I'm building a business. Let's just make a Facebook community out of it. We can get a lot of, uh, you know, attraction through that, but the whole essence of community, uh, has been lost there. So what what recommendation, what advice would you give to these new uh, online ventures that are starting up to, to deal community, not for themselves, but for the sake of uh, adding value to the market that you are in and being a contributor there? Yeah. I mean, I think start simple. Um, people usually start with like, what tool should I use? And I'm like, no, I don't know. It doesn't, I mean, I just spent a few minutes talking about Discord. So like to a degree it matters, but the tool is again, only going to be a reflection of, of the work that you do. So I always tell people to start with a small core of motivated people and bring them together in a way that is comfortable and, and, and intentional and find out what they want to do and look for common themes. Uh, again, another common mistake is people will set up you know, let's go back to the Discord example. Let's say you do decide to set up a Discord for your online community. Cool. Or that could be, you know, Circle uh, was a new like forum platform or a Facebook group. Like again, the tool doesn't matter. WhatsApp. What I would, what, what I 
we're doing with the Indie Hall Discord, which on one hand is a migration from Slack, right? So in theory, we could just copy paste all the channels from Slack into Discord and good to go. Well, A, there's like, we have like 200 channels, which is just too freaking many. So we're using this as an opportunity to like refresh and clean and regroup and be a little more intentional about what comes over and how we organize it and stuff like that. But more importantly, it's not we the team, it's we the community, right? So we're treating Discord as an opportunity to start a new co-working space, right? And we're saying, hey, we've done some research. We brought some people over that were motivated to try it out. Help us figure out what bumpy parts, either we need to configure it differently, or there's a question we need to answer, but we can't answer it ourselves. We kind of just need to try it. And every wave of people that gets invited over to Discord, it's with sort of two, two prompts. One is, here's the invite link, come and try it out. Here's a couple of things to get started, a couple of things you should do, a couple of things to explore, a couple tweaks you can make it to more personalized to your experience. But the second part is maybe more important, which is we're looking to make this place better. Like we didn't create the whole thing yet. It's a work in progress. And so we're inviting you to be a part of that work in progress. If there's a channel in Slack that you really love and maybe doesn't get as much activity as you like, let's talk about why that is and what we, based on what we know about community building or about the way the community has shifted and evolved to make that place not just exist over here but be better over here and it's for me it's all about empowering it's about understanding what people want to accomplish and empowering them to take ownership over that right so one of my favorite lines and my team knows this and plenty of members have heard me say it when somebody comes to us with an idea the easy response is that's a great idea we'll get right on that but the best response is that's a great idea what can i do to help you do that and when you're starting something new online or off, I think people sometimes are a little more instinctive towards this offline because the work is literally requires more people. Online is, is tricky because you literally could just set up a Discord as one person. It'll take you a few hours. But to have the restraint to not do it. Like before we invited people over, when we just as a team were experimenting, we created some channels that mirrored ones that we knew were popular. And then before we invited people, I said, get rid of those. Because I want people to come over here and say, well, where's my favorite channel? I say, here's how you create it, right? I want to show them how to use it as a learning experience, show them how to do it, but then also plant the seed of the idea of like, you can do this. And here's how we want to do that process. And to go through that with them is is so important. That's this, this pattern of doing things with people instead of for them or to them. And online communities, I think it's just as important that it's not a, because otherwise it's just a broadcast channel, right? It's a place where you and your team and maybe a handful of super members are the ones doing the talking and everybody else is silent and just waiting for the next instruction, right? Versus a place where people feel a sense of ownership, a sense of agency and freedom to move around and make it better. And that's the big, the big message is like, this isn't done. It needs to be made better. That last part is key because once people learn that things don't need to be perfect in order for them to be started and then we make them better together, that translates to, to literally everything as far as I'm concerned. Yeah, Alex. So I think the whole world is transitioning to building relations and connections online and all the inputs that you gave uh, are 
going to be super helpful for people like me who run a co-working co-living place uh, and who's kind of juggling with uh, getting engagement from online communities or past members uh, so alex uh, you were in india last year uh, and uh, after that you wrote about uh, something about third wave of co-working uh, so can you elaborate a little on that about your journey or how you saw uh, co-working industry evolve over the years yeah well and this this ties nicely into something i was saying before about and people pay a lot of attention to co-working in, in the us and some parts of europe and and you know, the, the west broadly speaking but i i also think that it's the, that co-working even though there is a wide range of things that are happening is is relatively one note today but that's today the article you're referring to which i think if you google third wave co-working uh, you'll, you're, or the three waves of co-working, something like that, you'll find it. When I was in India for the CU Asia conference, I noticed a new kind of conversation happening that I hadn't noticed before, but that was clearly an evolution of past conversations about co-working. This is mostly from an operator, you know, founder perspective, but also the teams, you know, the, I, the, I was deeply impressed with the level of sophistication and understanding that a lot of team members, people who are hired to work in a co-working space had when I was in India, I was blown away. There were some really, really smart people that, that, that have been hired to work on, on whether it's community teams or operations teams, people's really got their, got their shit together. Um, and so I was sort of reflecting like, well, where did this come from? Why does this feel different for me? And what, what is it maybe tell us about where things are headed? So when I'm trying to understand where things are headed, I, I like to look backwards and try and figure out the, the through line from where we were to where we are. That line tells us pretty, at least directionally where we're headed. And so I remember the, the early days of co-working, which we talked about a little bit already, my own personal experience, but beyond me personally, there was also this meta community of people who were going through very similar experiences to me, where they were building regional communities, setting up physical locations, and then growing from there. And there was a period of time early on where if I met somebody who who knew what co-working was, and like knew about the co-working Google group, which is now a forum at forum.coworking.org, or the co-working wiki, or the sort of founding uh, core values and principles and things like that. Like if you knew those things, we instantly had something in common and there was a lot of shared values, but there was also maybe some naivety and a lack of sophistication on the business side of things. A lot of places were being set up, uh, you know, as effectively unsustainable operations, not because of, of, I mean, yes, because of mistakes, but also because people had it in their head that building community and making money are are an antithetical to one another. You can only do one or the other. If you are making money, you are not building community. If you're building community, you can't make money. Both of those things are false. So that was, that was sort of phase one was this sort of deeply optimistic, very philosophically driven origin of the co-working movement, which still exists today. 
And then there was a second wave where the real estate folks started showing up and the serviced office people started showing up. And I remember the first time I experienced it was at the Coworking Europe conference in Berlin. And it was the first year that WeWork was on the scene. It was the first year that, you know, the co- I was seeing co-working operations that were like 100, 150, 200,000 square foot spaces. And I'm like, this just doesn't make any sense. Like the scale doesn't make sense to me. Um, and there was there was a few different perspectives that, that happened. One of them was definitely fear that like, oh, these, you know, the corporates are coming in and they're going to ruin our good thing. There was confusion about you know, who belongs to which faction sort of thing. And there was also a, a sense from some people of, well, let's just welcome everybody. And it's, it's, it's all one big thing. It's open to everybody. And I'm not sure if any of those things are entirely right or wrong or, or true or false, but they're, they're what people were seeing and feeling and experiencing. And to a degree, I think we still see it today. Uh, maybe even more so in, in some ways. Um, but that second wave was marked by sort of a pendulum swing away from the optimistic, make things better for people, even if we're not making any money side, to let's make this thing big and wildly profitable because the new hotness and, you know, investor money and blah, 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 blah. And they that that second wave also really only recreated the surface elements and so like they copied all of the ways a co-working space would look on the surface but it was kind of like a you know a 50 percent photocopy it was just the surface level elements it was none of the deeper understanding it was like this weird kind of uh, cl- clone that wasn't quite right it always felt a little bit off and i think that just separated those two factions even further from each other for a lot of people. So we've got sort of the optimistic but unsustainable first wave. We have the opportunistic but relatively soulless second wave. And now we're at third wave where what I experienced in Goa and I continue to see is people who are somewhere in the middle. And this is the way pendulum uh, uh, patterns tend to move. But somewhere in the middle where the they understand the real human elements of co-working, right? They did not skip over whether they've done the research or they come from a background in community building, whatever it is like, but they get that the core is bringing people together and that, that is real work. That is not a, or they, or they understand human psychology, right? They understand human psychology, right? Yeah. Right. Exactly. And that it's not a, an afterthought. It's not just, a, we can't just like slap the word community on it and say, we're done here. Right. But they are also, more sophisticated on the business side of things and recognize that if it's not sustainable, then serving that community is kind of doing that community a disservice because anything you build can't continue because it will eventually go away. If you are the the sort of only thing holding it together, or if it's unable to continue on its own. So, so third wave co-working is this kind of sweet spot in between, and this is still relatively young, but I'm seeing it more outside of the U.S. than in the U.S., which is interesting. And it'll be very interesting to see what happens post-COVID because I think we're going to see a 
massive resurgence of second wave co-working because there's this theoretical and actual massive wave of you know new remote workers for corporations who can't work in their home and once their region is safe to be around other people assuming they even want to be um that there's going to be opportunities for co-working spaces to take pick up those corporate contracts and that might be true but i also know that the, a lot of those spaces are going to end up just being a place where somebody rents a desk they're basically going to commoditize as a service and and once you enter into that commodity race it's a race to the bottom right so what i think will be interesting are the third wave the more sophisticated third wave operators who recognize that opportunity but also stay focused on and reinforce the value of what makes them and their community unique for the people that they will serve and i think that 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 side of the pendulum swing i think is worth being very optimistic about it's tough to tell exactly what it'll look like and when because of the way things are unfolding and it could be i think people who are optimistic for this to be you know a 2021 thing might be right but maybe not um i think we need to get through a winter with this another winter with this virus before we really understand how it's impacting our communities and and also what will be the psychological baggage of you know people are not going to even if they technically can it is technically safe to and then people are going to be really hesitant a lot of people will be really hesitant to put themselves in an environment where they're around a lot of people and the people that they're around are changing all the time it's so weird i say weird in the most genuine way to have the one thing that we've always been really good at which is bringing together people in in these sort of random and constantly changing configurations we're optimized for that we're designed for that and it is the most dangerous thing that we can do in the world today uh uh that that juggling act is uh, it's 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 a it's kind of mental um to to think about it right now but i think there, there's a function of time i think the hard part right now is for third wave co-working to time this well and if you move too early to become dependent on a physical space to only have to, to shut it down one of the biggest reasons we didn't reopen is because i didn't want to re- put all the work into reopening and then two weeks later learn that we have to close again I'm watching it happen to all of our schools and restaurants and like it's just that's so much stress on top of god forbid somebody gets sick or carries the virus some but somewhere else so like me personally, I won't be able to sleep at night knowing that my decision, not obviously I didn't infect the person, but if my decisions are responsible for something bad happening to somebody else, I don't, I, I can't, I literally won't be able to sleep at night. So I'd rather figure out a way to wait this out so that we have the best chance possible to come back in whatever form we need to come back in and whatever context exists in the unknowable future. Right now, it's all about pacing to get to then and there, wherever and whenever then and there happen to be. So, uh, Alex, you talked about, you know, big opportunity out there and uh, some some players who are a part of this third wave uh, who can understand the opportunity, uh, but still time it well, uh, would basically 
survive uh, this is something that uh, we have also you know heard from liam martin in the previous episode uh, so liam is the co-founder of time doctor uh, and he runs this running remote conference uh, so he also shared the same views that okay there is an opportunity in next 36 months but uh, it's all about timing I think the opportunity right now is to invest in the people who are stuck at home before you need to ask anything of them. So like focus on is it, you know, support to help people navigate the regional relief from the government? Is it education and bringing in outside experts to teach people maybe skills or perspectives they need to adjust their business to make sense today? There's so much you can do that is, you know, you can do stuff for free, but you can also charge for some of that stuff. You got to keep it affordable to the people based on their situation. So keep that in mind. But I think there's a zillion things to do now that don't require physical space. Once you've got a space, it becomes harder to do them because you've got a space to take care of. So doing those things, doing them online, getting good at doing them online, I think serves three, three specific roles. One is you're doing it now, which means you're building those relationships, building those connections, earning trust for whatever comes in the future. Two, is you're building a better customer, right? The person who, if there's a space down the road, like they will be in a better position to be a member longer because their business will be healthier. But the other thing is, is all the stuff that we're doing online now, when we can reopen, we're still gonna do online. So we are, I have always said to, you know, we should decouple your income potential from your square footage. And people, once they rent a space, can't get their heads wrapped around that because like all my memberships are tied to using space. And I go, well, there's your problem, right? So right now we've decoupled all of our memberships from space usage. And now people are seeing, oh, here's all of the ways I get value from this community. And we're seeing all of these new ways to create value for and with and by the community. There's very few things that we're doing now that we won't continue doing in some fashion online post-quarantine because they allow us to include people from literally all over the world. We've not just had people joining from all around the region, all over the U.S., like literally all over the world. Um, And that didn't happen. We had people occasionally join from remotely either because they were based in Philadelphia at one point and they moved away and they wanted to remain or reconnect or they're planning to move to Philadelphia and they wanted to get connected to the community before they got there. I think the nomad ecosystems pro- like could do more with that as well as like join a community before you get there. If you're only gonna be in a place for three weeks, wouldn't it be nice to know some people when you get here? Um, I think you can do a lot, especially for nomad centric co-working spaces that struggle with turnover and churn and things like that. I think this may be helping people see what, what maybe they weren't able to before the other thing is that you know that that is the durability of the business when somebody no longer needs space and your membership is always tied to space what happens they leave versus when somebody you know gets a new job moves away whatever it is no longer needs space they just change to a different level of membership because there's still many ways for them to participate be involved contribute get value, all those things. So I'm excited for a version of Indie Hall in the future where it's a hybrid of online and offline, which it was in the past, but our online, our understanding of how to do what we do online is 
so much more sophisticated now than it was even you know three months ago and i see that only improving as as we go forward so uh, alex you appear on a lot of podcasts you support podcasters uh, so what do you see uh, you know podcast as a channel evolving into especially with you know people are not commuting to offices and they have all other channels out there in front of them so why should yeah no it's a really good question and i can look at it from a couple different perspectives one of them is podcasts are really i mean this conversation is a great way a great example is like podcasts are just a cool way to connect with people the fact that it is a consumable media to me is secondary uh it is a way to have a conversation recorded so so that other people in the future can listen in and i think that's really cool i mean i'm also a fan of some of like the high production deeply researched shows and things like that but i feel like those shows require so much more of my attention and so when i'm not commuting it's tough for me to find time in my day to actually listen to them it's like doing laundry and uh running errands is really the only time i listen to podcasts now whereas before you know every day i rode a, i ride a motorcycle and so every day when i was riding my bike in i've got my uh, i've got a sound system in my helmet and i was listening to podcasts almost all the time and now that that's gone my podcast consumption has also gone way down but of the stuff that i'm most excited about i think is these if we treat podcasts as a way of 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 connection building connections and relationships which is cool and also documenting and recording what we're going through one of the cool things that one of indie hall members brought up pretty early on in in quarantine is the importance of primary source uh historical documents a lot of the history that we have about past experiences i should say a lot of the history that we read about past experiences is through the filter of a historian or a documentarian or something along those lines the reason they can do their job is because somebody wrote down what they were going through and i think we are at a unprecedentedly high level of people recording what we're going through now is somebody going to go and listen to all the podcasts that were created during quarantine goodness i hope not um <laughs> but the fact that Know, all of this primary source material does exist somebody could download all of these audio files run them through a transcript generator and maybe pull out some interesting insights about culture in the future is really pretty cool so i think you know the idea of of having these conversations for ourselves to build relationships also just kind of like process it all you know feels pretty lonely to be going through some of this and and to have a thing to know that you're not the only one going through it even when you know it psychologically to just like to be able to talk about it is is really rewarding um and then on top of that you know we you know it's it the utilization of it is advancing the technology too so the tools are getting better which you know who knows what that turns into so i'm i'm excited about about all the things that podcasts sort of let us do and then speaking maybe a little more selfishly but also practically you know i have you know, we're here in part because of the book as well and i've got a lot of friends who are, are authors i have friends that run publishing companies and a lot of their typical 
marketing and promotion technique doesn't work right now and might not work for the foreseeable future. And, you know, book, independent bookstores really struggling, all those kinds of things. And so I knew I was going to do some uh, podcast promotion of the book. But when I stepped back and I said, that doesn't really sound like something I would do anyway. What would be cool is if the book becomes a tool for these conversations where, you know, the book is as much of a, as the podcast is an excuse to get some people in a room and figure out a way for us to connect and dig a little bit deeper and create some companion material for the book. But more than anything to, to just, like I said, have these, have these conversations. So, you know, and I, I, you can tell when somebody's got a, a book out and they start appearing on a bunch of podcasts, but you basically hear the same thing over and over. One of the things that's been really fun is every show that I've visited, and I've been treating it like visits, right? I'm coming to hang out with you for a little while and and each one is a visit and it's going to be us talking and the book will come up at some points in conversation. We can dig into it as much or as little as we want, but it's more like, uh, uh, it's more like going on tour with the way people would do a physical book tour. And what's also cool for folks that are listening, if you're interested in in enjoying this conversation, is I've been taking the episodes that I've been recording with people for their podcasts, pulling out the portion specifically that is the most unique to that conversation, recording a new intro and putting that on our podcast feed as well. And so when you subscribe to the Stack in the Bricks podcast feed, you actually get to go on tour with me and hop from conversation to conversation and hear the similarities, hear what comes up repeatedly as themes, which I think is really interesting and useful, but also see and explore new things, find new podcasts that you didn't know were out there. And that has been really, really fun to do and to see and hear people's response to. So I think that's the kind of creativity that I'm excited about is once people realize, you know, recording it is, is a valuable experience in and of itself but once you've got it well then what else can you do with it and to really really think about that as a creative and connecting experience as well i think we can be doing a whole lot more than we already are so alex coming back to remote work uh, i feel that remote work in the west and remote work in the east are two different things right so uh, taking the case of india uh, a lot of people are struggling to you know, with, with the transition to remote work because they're in tiny houses, they have kids around, uh, or, you know, they just don't know about co-working for that matter. They feel lonely. So uh, what sort of advice would you give to people who are getting into remote work for the first time? Ooh, I'm going to be honest. I don't know if I've got good advice. I'm really bad at remote work. <laughs> <laughs> That's why I started a co-working space. <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, and your point about kids, I mean, I don't have kids and my friends who do, I think are the most amazing human beings right now because they're doing their job or at least trying. They're helping take care of the house and they're taking care of a kid. Um, and a lot of the infrastructure people are used to having to make that possible, not just comfortable, but possible is gone. Um, so I don't, I don't know. This is one where I'm comfortable saying, I don't know. I think the, the best thing you can do is do a little bit of introspection maybe and figure out what are, when you're doing good work, 
what does that look like? What does that need to feel like? And if you can't do that at home, A, recognize that that is totally normal. Like I said, I'm really bad at it. But then maybe try and find some other people who have a similar challenge and, and solve that problem together. That's that's my playbook, right? Uh, so I don't, I don't, I haven't seen great answers, great solutions, especially because, you know, it's if depending on your situation, you can't just leave home to go work from another place. If you've got kids at home who aren't going to school because the schools are closed and things like that, everybody's situation is different. I think I'm going to echo something I said before about don't pay attention to what other people are doing in the context of comparing yourself to them. Try and learn from what other people are doing, but just like stop there. Uh, and if there are people who are doing something that seems useful, look for ways. Is there a way that doing it together is better for everybody? I think you know, one of the more interesting things that is, uh, I get the sense that it might be more common in, in the East just because of the commu- more communal nature of cultures and society is people like families coming together to share responsibilities beyond what one family can take care of. I think the, the West is in some cases going to have to reckon with that being, there's a reason that we used to do that. And there are some really maybe silly and dumb reasons that we stopped and we may have to get back to it. That's like the most, to me, obvious practical solution is recognize you can't do this by yourself. So find some people who you can trust and who you, or with whom you can build trust who are in a similar situation and figure out what your resources are that you have between you to create something that you couldn't create on your own. You may come up with a solution that is something that already exists out in the world. You might come up with something new. I don't know. Uh, we're, we're all figuring this one out together. Remote work was already a challenge, especially for people who are forced into it. Uh, It's one thing to choose it. It's another thing to have it chosen for you. Nobody likes that feeling. And to to add another layer to that is like, depending on your work and who, if you're working for somebody else and working remote, like if you're a full-time employee for another company working remote, how they handle remote is not always entirely in your control. So I think recognizing that that is common it's not good in fact i'd go so far as to say it's bad and that needs to change and improve people that run remote companies need to learn how to run remote companies and not just run an offline company using online tools they're different um but we are very very much at the bottom of the bell curve in terms of that learning experience there are so few companies there's a lot of companies that are fully remote right a growing number but there are so few of them that have a done a really good job and of the ones who have done a really good job there are even fewer who have written down the process and share it with other people there's lots of people sharing how to do it but all they're doing is regurgitating the quote-unquote best practices and stuff like that but in terms of like first-hand experience i did it here's what we did here's what broke here's how we fixed it here's how we learned all those kinds of things very very little first-hand documentation and there's a reason for that right if you're busy running a company the last thing on your mind is writing it down for another company to benefit from i get it um maybe an opportunity to just figure out where that fits into into your business model or into your own intentionality for making the the world of work better if you care about that at all and if you don't that's cool too maybe find an easy way to dump that knowledge if you've got something that's working really well but 
when you're on the learning side of things, don't assume that what's working well for somebody else will work for you. Treat it as information, experiment, try it, evolve it, see what works. There's no single solution here. Uh, in the same way that there's no single solution for physical workplace either. We're just been thrown in the deep end without a lot of time to learn how to swim. So it's uh, it's if you're anxious, you are not alone. Yeah, so the point that you made about managing remote companies, uh, you know, the two common uh, traits that uh, come repeatedly in your conversations or posts, trust and communication, uh, those are very important while managing remote companies, and remote teams. Uh, and I think even the management leadership teams, uh, they need to learn uh, looking at teams more as human connections than human resources. Right. Yeah. The team is not a machine. The team is a group of human people, human people who work individually and together to create some result. Uh, and that result might be output. That result might be other things. Uh, one of my favorite examples of this, a very, uh, very effective fully remote team that has gone from fully remote to hybrid in-person remote to a new version of hybrid in-person remote is a company called Wildbit. They're based here in Philadelphia. Uh, they run some software products. One that most people might know is called Postmark. Uh, it's an email uh, delivery tool and a, a few others. I, I'm friends with the founders. They were actually Chris uh, and his now wife, Natalie, were some of the first people that I met in that early days of finding people at Indie Hall. When I mentioned somebody's building a SaaS, that's amazing. That was Chris. That was the folks at Wildbit. Um, so it's fun that, that they would come back up again in this conversation. The way they view their company is their the, the founder's job is to make an amazing team possible. And the team's job is to make products, right? The company exists to create an amazing team. The products are a byproduct, not the reason for the company to exist. And that is a very unique perspective and one that I think is really, really valuable. And you see it in the choices they make. You see it in the way they've always run their team. Um, actually, I worked with the company more closely as a consultant for a few years in the... Um, like around 20, 2009, 2010. And I got to see it from the inside. And in 2009, 2010, to be running a, a mostly remote, actually, I think an entirely remote, I was there while they shifted from entirely remote to having their first headquarters here in Philadelphia. To see how they ran that and to know and to see inside a lot of other places now, they've got something special. Um, and back to like, they've written a lot about what they do. And I think that a lot of folks just don't necessarily believe them or more, maybe more commonly they believe them, but they're not willing to put in the amount of work that they do. So I would, I would encourage folks, if you're interested in this sort of thing to do some research on Wildbit, specifically Natalie Nagel is their CEO. Natalie's been on a number of podcasts in the last couple of years, most recently on, I think the Indie Hackers podcast with um, DHH from Basecamp. It was a really interesting, wonderful debate. You know, two really smart people, people I admire, people I, I look up to, um, are, and uh, people I think are worth actually listening closely to and taking to heart. I wish Natalie was on more podcasts. She's wonderful uh, and is a just a great business leader and a great person uh, to to be learning from. Yeah. So, 
Alex, I would like to tell you my take on uh, after reading what I felt after reading Tiny MBA. So what I so my my take on the book is that Alex went through so many experiences, learned how to run businesses, uh, became an entrepreneur by himself, had an IT background, uh, and once he started climbing up that ladder, uh, he realized whoa. the way in the way management is is set in the society it's very different and very simple from that it's it's not a it's not rocket science it's just about how you how you communicate with people how trustworthy you are how much before you expect things for yourself how much are you ready to give to other people like this is what my major understanding of your book was and it blew me because i i've I'm a I'm a, a a graduation dropout and I've been an entrepreneur for the last few years and somewhere down the line I had this uh, inferiority complex that oh I did not go to a, a high you know a, a very reputed management school to study how to how to run a business but that just reading that book for 40 minutes gave me that confidence so my question to you right now is uh, in 2020 uh, is it is it required for young high school passouts to go to college to to study management to become an entrepreneur or to to study entrepreneurship or are there alternate ways according to you so there's there are definitely alternate ways but i'm i'm going to tread tread carefully here um because this is a a nuanced uh a conversation and for a variety of reasons and also the, a lot of this is also dependent on on region So I'll speak for uh, first, and I'd say most from my perspective here in the U.S., um, which is that it, I also have the advantage. If you're listening, you can't see this, but you might be able to guess. I'm a white guy, <laughs> so I have some inherent advantages in in the world, but also in business. That whether I knew it or not at the time made it easier for me. uh which also meant that if i were to take away a tool like a credential right depending on the environment for me that not having that credential might not make a difference but for somebody else you know um a young black person for instance uh or a young immigrant that's potentially a very different environment so i think you have to consider the entire environment and the entire person in answering this question so which is not exactly what your question is is it, is it possible is it possible the answer is yes do you potentially have other advantages that you will need to build in order to succeed completely also yes depending on who you are where you are so you know for for me i think the the advantage of of a higher education experience is still going to be the well i guess say there's there's three depending on who you are these three may be more or less valuable one i already talked about is the credential right in some for some people in some environments depending on the combination that credential is still maybe useful number 2 is the social network right the people that you meet i'm not friends with many people that i went to college with but i can also track the network that i built while i i was in college which included some jobs that i had to success that i had later the third is learning how to learn and 
I will go even one step deeper, which is learning how you learn. There is more than one way to learn. There's more than one way to, to, to get to get knowledge in your head. There's more than one way to be good at learning. And w- one of the stories that I told in the, in the um, preface of the book is, you know, being deeply bored in the fundamentals of macroeconomics class and many of the classes that I took when I was in college, but being deeply enthralled and excited to learn during my co-ops, which were work opportunities presented by the college experience in an, an environment that I might not have been able to get to. I probably wouldn't, even with my advantages, probably would not have been able to get into these jobs at that age level and at that level of experience had it not been for the express decision of that company to hire somebody who was in school to mentor them, to teach them as a very junior person. So those benefits still exist. I think the thing where, where things go haywire is people who view college as I go in and it's a set of railroad tracks, right? I, I start and so long as I take the train to the destination, that I get what I came here for. And I think the key to college, like most things, is you need to constantly be kind of evaluating it and going, is this working for me, right? And if it's not working for me, are there parts of it that are working for me? And can I use just those parts until I don't need them anymore, right? So college is a lot of things. At its heart, it's a tool for building these advantages. So expecting the advantages to be granted to you because you completed four years and all the coursework they told you is where I think people often end up disappointed. I think if you end up with, if you do that and you end up with the credentials and relationships and you tried some things you wouldn't have before because you were afraid to or because you didn't have access to them, I think in order to get what you need out of college, you kind of need to be more active player right and that's hard for a lot of people that's not the experience that's not the expectation that's set up and worse depending on the college the administration doesn't want you to be an active player they want you to be a quiet recipient of your education and get your degree at the end and that's a very real problem of the university uh, um uh, uh industrial complex so to speak so so i think you, you need to be prepared to be an active player and and not just do the school work, but do the work work, like do all that meta work, which is a lot. Um, now, the, the last piece of that is is really sort of like the, the societal stigma of you know, dropping out. You mentioned you dropped out and you, you felt, you know, self-conscious of that and saying, well, maybe I, I don't have something I'm supposed to drop out. Dropping out comes with a stigma instead of, I always viewed it as like, I got out before I got the rest of the debt. Like, like yeah. I, I, I won, I got what I wanted and I don't have to pay the other. Yeah. That's, that's always there. That's, I mean, somebody who, who chooses to drop out from a college there, there might be a reason, like there was a strong reason for it. And, and I, and I'm really, really grateful that I took that decision, but you know, sometimes down the line, when, while you are doing things, it, it, it just stays on your head that what if, what if, whenever there are blockages on your path. But but you know when you connect the bigger dots together, it it makes sense why why something happened to you and and uh, you learned what you needed to learn, but maybe through, not through a conventional way, through other ways. But the learning anyway comes to you if if you are ready for it. 
Yeah, I think that's I think that's the key is like where whether you're learning at school or on the job or in a mentorship. I'm a big fan of apprenticeships. I think we should have more of those more companies of all sizes, you know, if you're a solo business owner, consider bringing on an apprentice as your first employee is something a drum I've been beating for for the last year. And treat learning as an act of exploration. I, I, I dropped out of school 15 years ago. I have never stopped learning. Every day I'm figuring out something new to learn, something new to do. Uh, again, I figured out how to self-publish a book, <laughs> um, which was its own you know, set of, you know, no one taught me how to do that. I had to set, you know, pick a destination, do some research, find some experts, talk to them, set up some experiments, figure it out. And that's how you do a successful anything. And I don't think they really teach that in school, although school provides a brilliant environment for, for doing it. If you, if you do it, if you approach it that way. Uh, so, so yeah, I mean, I, th I think that's, that is, that is the big lesson is, is like lifelong learning. I mean, even if you got a college degree, you get into a field, if you're in a field, I mean, I used to say, if you're in a field like technology, you have to keep learning because things are constantly changing, but that's no longer limited to technology because technology touches everything. You're in, you're in a new, new world right now where if you've been able to avoid learning new tools, new technology, new skills. I, I did a, like an intro to zoom for like later in their career executives early on in quarantine, a friend of mine runs this like founders over 40 group. And she's like, a lot of them were just like totally scared off by zoom. And I was like, well, let's figure out exactly what freaks them out about it. And a lot of it comes down to these are people who are very comfortable standing in front of a room of their peers, their employees, whatever it is. And, you know, delivering a sales presentation or a leadership, you know, meeting, whatever it is, but zoom freaks them out. That's interesting. Don't you think? And so I had to think about, well, what is the psychology of a person that is comfortable in person, but anxious on zoom? Well, in person, they have a sense of control over the room, right? They know where things are. They know where they put things. They, uh, you know, they can't just like randomly, not be heard. Like if you're speaking and people in the room, people can hear you. Whereas online, if they don't know the tool, they don't like the way they show up on camera, right? So if you show up to work dressed a certain way, you appear a certain way. If you don't know how to appear on camera or you have crappy camera, it's going to lower your confidence. And so it's a combination of comfort with the tool, not just how to use it, but if something goes wrong, how do you fix it? And comfort with being on camera. So in 10 minutes, I covered like three or four foundations of each of those. And a bunch of these folks who were previously totally scared, not of the tool, but to learn because nobody wants to feel stupid. And the later you are, like the longer you've been good at something, the harder it is to deal with feeling stupid. Uh, and so you got these people who are used to being really good at what they do. I had to help them realize like, yeah, you're learning something new. It's not going to feel great at first, but if you get a little practice in, it'll feel better quickly. Here's a few things to practice that'll give you that feedback loop a little bit faster. So 
it ties into one of the lessons in, in the tiny MBA about passion. Like I'm not passionate about getting on a zoom call. I don't really give a shit, but I am passionate about the feedback loop of being able to connect with somebody quickly, easily get, get the work done, get a result. And if, if I can't get to that because I'm having a battle with the technology, that's going to slow down the feedback loop and I'm going to be less than passionate about the technology. I'm going to hate the technology. I'm going to think the technology is working against me. In some cases it is. <laughs> but but if you can learn the most likely things to go wrong and know how to prevent them before they happen or fix them when they do, then you can just focus on the thing that you are there for and, and hopefully get, get the real work done. So we talked a lot about uh, education uh, and access to education and what education means to different people. Uh, so we are actually launching a program using power of remote work uh, cool. to bridge the urban rural gap in India to uh, create a level oh. playing field, uh, helping villagers, you know, be comfortable with technology or with changing landscape. Uh, at the same time, you know, help Indian cities. Uh, which are over uh, tens of millions of people uh, to be more sustainable because they can learn from villages. Uh, so it's called Program Panchayat. Um, That's amazing. Uh, you know, I think I think we're I, and I hope I'm so excited for you. I want to hear more about this as it evolves. This is the kind of thing that you know to sort of extend what I was saying earlier about find people who share your problem and connect with them. I think this is, this is a part of that too, is when you start creating solutions, it is really easy to not take a minute to think about who is being left behind by those solutions. And a lot of the, because so many of the solutions that we've built to make modern life better and modern work better and modern work more, more, um, you know, profitable and prosperous and things like that. I think it was easy to do it in part because we didn't stop to think, well, who is going to be left behind? And we're now at a point where we have to play a little bit of catch up and say, well, who is being left behind? So in the example you're talking about and, you know, bridging the disconnect between people who are in, you know, in more rural settings and villages, I live in a big city, the sixth biggest city in America. And we are also the poorest big city in America. I read a statistic that said um, 27% of Philadelphians do not have access to the internet or a computer at home. And in some parts of the city that is as high as 63%. That is in a big city in the United States of America. So the problem you're describing isn't, and the access is a part of it, but think about all the things that those people don't know how to do or don't even know they could do if they did know how to do them, right? And the economic access that that impacts is, is serious. So that problem is not a new problem. That problem has existed for decades in, in America and in Philadelphia. What we're seeing now is be, because of the, the pandemic and the economic crisis that, that came from it, those problems are now much harder to ignore. And the people they've impacted, it's now, now even more widespread. So... Yeah, I mean, this work is important. I'm excited for you. I'm, I'm proud to know that you're doing that. That's really cool. 
Yeah. So the way I way we see it is, you know, remote work has power to bridge the gap or widen it. Because if uh, remote work only helps uh, white collar knowledge workers who have college degrees and uh, technological skills, it is going to leave a lot uh, millions of people behind. But at the same time, if we can use these uh, people to spread technology into smaller pockets, uh, it can help everyone. Yeah. Hundred percent, hundred percent agree. Yeah. You'll have to keep me posted. <laughs> yeah, yeah, sure. <laughs> and if there's anything I can do to help as well, I mean, like I said, not an expert on remote work, but if there's anything that that we we can we can bring together or, or contribute, count me in. Sure, sure. We are looking for partners. We're looking for everyone, anyone who wants to contribute in whatever ways, and uh, your help would be great as someone who has seen the remote work since ages cool sounds good so alex i'm i'm really curious to know why why the the title tiny mba when i first shared on twitter uh that i was going to be taking this collection of of lessons and ideas and turning it into a book um i was thinking about you know, it, it is, I knew it was a business book that was pretty clear, mm-hmm. but also have to look at it from a perspective of what would people sign up to read? You know what I mean? How do I anchor this? Like, cause this thing, if I, if I was like, you know, a hundred short lessons on how to understand human psychology so you can like, no one's gonna yeah. read that. <laughs> yeah. So, so I was thinking, you know, what, what would be kind of, you know, cheeky and fun. And actually the first idea was the bite-sized MBA, you know, a hundred bite-sized, bite-sized, bite-sized. And I was like, ah, I don't know about that. Um, and I was sort of, I was, I started Googling the variants around that with MBA because people know what an MBA is, or at least they think they know what an MBA is. Uh, and I was like, if I can anchor it to that, even though I know it's got very little to do with an MBA, if anything, it's a complement to a traditional MBA program, I think it's not a replacement for. And I have a couple of conversations coming up with people who have MBAs. Uh, so I'm excited to hear their reflections on it. And uh, Nilifer Merchant, who wrote the foreword, is an MBA. And she's like a very much, I mean, she's a very successful MBA. And she uh, has. You know, is well known in the MBA circle, so I was excited to get her take on it as well. And in googling around to try and find, you know, there I think there was another bite-sized MBA, and then I got to mini MBA, and I was like, mini MBA, that's taken too. And I was like, tiny MBA, and I was like, that just sounds kind of adorable. I think yeah. I want that. <laughs> uh, and as soon as, I, as as soon as I thought, I was like, yeah, that's definitely the one. Uh, yeah. And and tr- and there was totally available. Nobody else uh, had it. Another fun story about the name. Apparently when I had that thought, I, I was also, you know, figuring in domain names and stuff like that. Yeah. And apparently when searching for it, realized that there was a .mba domain. And so mm. I bought tiny.mba and then promptly forgot about it. So when it was about two weeks before launch and I was setting up the website and things like that, I was like, oh, shoot, I got to go buy a domain. 
And I went, I was like, oh, shoot, there's a .mba domain. That's awesome. I wonder if there's tiny MBA. Ah, darn, somebody already has it. I wonder who has it. <laughs> oh, it's me. Yeah. I bought it. <laughs> I just forgot about it. <laughs> and when did you buy it? How, uh, how long ago did you buy it? In, like, in, in March or so. So it was like three or four months. But a lot has happened in those three or four months, guys. So <laughs> so that, that was just a pretty funny, um, pretty funny experience. So for 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 a book like yours, I, I I read a quote yesterday, which is, "Bigger isn't better, better is better." <laughs> That's right. Yeah. Well, that which is, which is from your book. It is. Yeah. That's one of my favorite quotes from from the book, and something I, I I've you know it's a line that I've referred to often over the years. I think the other thing was. I mean, so you, you read a, a digital copy of the book for folks who get a physical copy of the book and I'll hold it up for you guys. Unfortunately, the folks won't be able to hear this on the audio, but it's like physically pretty tiny too. Like it fits in the palm Whoa. of your hand. Um, and that was another factor in, you know, really kind of solidifying the name is, you know, every page in the book is kind of self-contained and tiny. The book itself is kind of self-contained and tiny. The amount of time it takes to read is kind of tiny, although it can be used in a handful of different ways. So uh, it's it's been cool, and it's not, it's got me thinking. You know, if folks have been responding to this really well. I think we have an opportunity to create other tiny products. Oh, that's another thing is is in in the business. So I, I run a business with my with my partner Amy Hoy, who that business is who's publishing this book. The business is called Stacking the Bricks, and we have a. Our, one of our most popular articles is called Why You Should Create a Tiny Product First. So a lot of folks sign up for our, go find our website or sign up for a mailing list because they want to create a software as a service or some, something big and complicated, um, you know, or the, the, the online equivalent of a co-working space, something big and complicated. And we always tell people like, there's nothing saying you can't do that, but it is hard to do that first. So starting with a tiny product, and we call it a tiny product because, in part because a lot of times the thing you can create that is a tiny product is even smaller than you think is reasonable, right? So we encourage people to start with the smallest thing that actually solves a problem for the person it's intended to solve that problem for. It doesn't have to solve all of the problems. It doesn't even have to solve everything related to that problem. One small thing. And that gives you the ability to, just like this book, start and finish faster which means you get a result faster, which means you get a little bit of experience faster, which means you get a little bit of confidence faster. You make a little bit of money faster. You earn the trust of the person who bought it faster. So it's not exclusively about speed, but it's about the feedback loop, right? It's not about doing it faster. It's about getting to the result to know whether or not it even worked, right? And so the word tiny was already in our vernacular. I'm not sure if I even thought about that before this conversation today. But tiny was, you know, tiny product was in the stacking the bricks kind of vernacular. And so this also fits from that perspective. But we could do, like Amy is a, a really brilliant designer. So we could do like the tiny product design book that focuses just on product design. And it would be the similar format. It would be 100 real short, tight things that, people need to know, need to think about, need to consider, need to remember, often forget, those kinds of things. We could zero it in on other 
categories of business. I could maybe invite other authors. Like I, I, I'm getting ahead of myself, not saying I'm going to do all these things, but it's been so cool to see the response to this format that I can't help but think there might be more. We, we maybe have stumbled across something here that we can do some more cool. Thank you so much, Alex. Thank you for joining us today. It was a very insightful uh, conversation that we had. Uh, let our audience know where can they buy the book Tiny MBA and how much is the price for it? Sure. If they buy the online copy and the price for the physical copy? Absolutely. Yeah. Well, thank, thank. First of all, thank you for having me and thank, you know, staying up late. You guys, I know that was uh, it's it's getting late there for you, so I appreciate appreciate the the time zone uh, juggling. Uh, great question. It's just fun to hang out with you guys. I really love this. Um, the book is at tiny.mba. That's the whole website, or you can Google Tiny MBA. The ebook is $9.99 uh, once we're out of pre-sales, which is tomorrow. So by the time folks are listening to this, it will be $9.99. And the paperback book, which includes a copy of the ebook, so you can read it right away for the first time as soon as you buy it while you're waiting for the paperback to ship uh, is $14.99. And we are shipping internationally and shipping is uh, to basically anywhere in the world, $8 or less. So for under 25 US dollars, you can have a cop physical copy of the book uh, as well as the digital one. And that's all available at tiny.mba. So people won't have to uh, you know, spend tens of thousands of dollars getting an MBA. Uh, they can just start with 25 and figure out. <laughs> just 25 bucks, yeah. And and look, uh, I'm just here to tear down the institution of higher education. Uh, that's yeah. my, my purpose in life. Schools yeah. <laughs> <laughs> are doing a great job of ruining themselves. They don't need my help. Um, yeah. but, but pick up the book. And, and for anyone who does, uh, A, thank you. B, I would love to hear from you if there is even one page in the book that makes you stop in your tracks and think for a minute. I want to hear what it is and what it made you think. Um, email me, alex at tiny.mba, or, or hit me up on Twitter. I'm pretty active there as well, Alex Hillman. Uh, I would love to hear from folks that, that read the book and found it useful or or insightful or even challenging in some ways if it challenged your, your preconceptions about business or something like it. I want to I wanna hear about it. Yep. Thanks, Alex, for coming over. And uh, happy birthday in advance. Your birthday in India starts in just over three hours. So. Fantastic. Well, uh, I will be cheersing to you guys. Thank you again. Stay safe. Be well. And uh, I, I hope we get to hang out again in, in person Definitely. in the future over a couple yeah. of years. That'd be awesome. Thank you. Yeah. Thank Thanks. You. Thanks, Alex. Thank you. Bye. Thank you for joining us. Right, Bye-bye. This was Alex Hillman on the Remote Explorers podcast. We are excited to know how you feel about the podcast. You could send us a message on Facebook or Instagram, or you could go to anchor.fm, search for Remote Explorers podcast and send us a voice message there. Uh, if you're listening it through Spotify, then you would find a link for the for the message the, where you could send us a voice message. I've read The Tiny MBA. I highly recommend everybody to read that. So anybody who's uh, a freelancer, is an entrepreneur running a business or wants to eventually at some point start a business. It's a book 
full of wisdom uh, of all the years of experience of Alex. Thank you so much for listening to this. There are a lot of exciting episodes that are on its way in the coming weeks. Thank you.